You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Black helicopters, strange lights in the sky, documents with paragraphs inked out. It's all part of a vast conspiracy to take up a lot of my time. Yeah, Seth, why's that? Molly, you just don't know, or maybe you do, how many emails and phone calls I get every week from people who are trying to convince me that the government's hiding aliens visiting the Earth. That's incredible, because as a SETI scientist, it would be job security for you to find extraterrestrials. But I suppose no matter what you say to these believers... They don't buy it. If I say there's no conspiracy to cover up the alien visits, then I, Seth Shostak, am part of that vast conspiracy to cover up alien visitations, and and so are you, Molly Bentley. It's Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? In this hour, put on your tinfoil thinking cap and join London journalist David Aronovich for a ride to the moon and back with an array of conspiracy theories. Oh, now, if only we had gone to the moon instead of that TV studio in Arizona. Well, that's right, and maybe the stars would have shown up in the photos, too. Also, Jonah Lair on scientific evidence that is overlooked by researchers who, well, don't believe their own data. Plus, a regular trip to Hollywood and the marketing of ghost detection meters. But first... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. A disturbing story from Iraq, where American troops prepare to withdraw from the country and violence continues. It seems that Iraqi security forces are relying on a bomb detection device that technical experts say is useless. This is a handheld device with a little telescopic antenna, and inside is mostly just a simple bit of electronics that you'll find in department store anti-theft tags, you know, kind of like RFID devices. Yet the Iraqi government has bought a lot of these bomb detectors. In reporting the story, the New York Times quoted a retired U.S. Air Force officer who said the device operates on the same principle as a Ouija board or a divining rod. In other words, the power of suggestion or imagination. Nonetheless, the Iraqi government has given hundreds of these things to security guards. On Brains on Vacation, we often muse with our skeptic Phil Plate as to whether it really matters whether people believe crazy stuff. Phil's been writing about these bomb-sniffing devices, and this time junk science has some serious consequences. What is going on is there is a company in England that is selling bomb detecting equipment and they're selling them to governments. They're selling them specifically to Iraq and Malaysia. And it turns out these bomb detectors, they're basically dousing rods. I mean, I'm I'm even calling them magic wands because they're basically just about as useful as that. Okay, so these were supposedly bomb-sniffing devices, things that could be used at a security checkpoint to tell guards whether someone was trying to smuggle in a bomb, right? Well, that's precisely right. They were being used at checkpoints to, to detect bombs in cars and, and various things like that. And these, these devices are basically boxes. They kind of look a little bit like Geiger counters. They might have a wand on top of them or something like that. And they're supposed to be able to sniff out the explosives in the bomb. And it turns out, though, that when you open these boxes up, all they have in them is is basically an ARFID, a radio frequency ID tag, and that's it. And there's no way, and I mean literally no way physically in this universe that we occupy, that a device like that can detect anything at all, let alone a bomb. So you pointed these things at a, at a car that's trying to get through the checkpoint, and, and, and if what, a needle wiggles or a light goes on, or, or you know, what do you see as the, as the guard? Well, something like that. It, it basically has, uh, it's like a Geiger counter. It, it tells you if there's a bomb in the car or not. Uh, but the thing is, it, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It can't work. It's like a dousing rod. And dousing rods, you, you've seen these. It's like a Y-shaped branch or copper rods or something like that that people use to try to find water or gold or something like that. 
people who use dowsing rods are utterly convinced that these things work. But every single time, and I mean every single time, that these things are tested under correct scientific circumstances, they fail. The bomb sniffing uh, technology we're talking about here is the same thing. The people who are using them are convinced they work. And no matter what tests are done, they still want to use them. In fact, the uh, Iraqi major general, uh, Jihad al-Jabiri, and the president of Iraq, al-Maliki, they, they tested these things and they still say they work, even though half of them failed. I'd, I'd love to I'd love to be privy to the tests they use. They flip a coin because, you know, if you, if you fail something half the time, it makes me wonder, you know, were they just guessing? And then you'd expect 50% failure rate. What do these things cost, Phil? Any idea? The prices, uh, I've seen them all over the place, but they cost tens of thousands of dollars each. And in fact, uh, in Iraq and Malaysia, they have spent tens of millions of dollars on these things. So not only are they wasting huge amounts of money, but these things don't work. And bombs are getting through the checkpoints and blowing up and killing people. And it turns out, you know, these things are more expensive than training bomb-sniffing dogs, which work really well. Dogs are very sensitive to certain odors. They can smell these explosives, and they tend to work. These things don't, and people are dying. All right, tens of millions of dollars for a small shipment of snake oil. People have died. Uh, what's going to happen? Why, why haven't the governments immediately, you know, replaced all these things, either with dogs or at least with, with guards who will look inside the car? You know, you think they would once they've tested these things and found that they don't work. But, you know, that confirmation bias, the idea that it worked once, therefore it must always work. And I, I forget when it doesn't work, that sort of thing. It's the gambler's fallacy. It, that sort of thing is very, very strong. And, and it's even worse than that. The, the head of the company that sells these products, Jim McCormick, was arrested under suspicion of fraud. In other words, lying about selling a product that he knows doesn't work. And after he was arrested, he gave an interview where he said about skeptics, about the people like us who say, yeah, these things don't work. He said, we have been dealing with doubters for 10 years. One of the problems we have is that the machine does look a little primitive. We are working on a new model that has flashing lights. So, I mean, if you can believe that, instead of you know, fixing this product or making it work, which of course he can't because it, it, it's, it's garbage. He's going to glue some flashing lights on it and probably sell them for twice as much. It's incredible. It is truly incredible. Well, this is one case where when brains go on vacation, it has very dire consequences. I'm really glad that you're pointing this out, Phil, and I hope that the governments that continue to use this will be brought up short on that and get rid of these devices. Well, it's not just me. This has been in the New York Times. It's been in uh, newspapers all over the world. And I'm hoping that uh, the military will put pressure on these governments so they'll stop wasting their money on products that are getting their people killed. Phil Plate, thanks very much. Thank you, Seth. Phil Plate is a skeptic. He's also the keeper of the website badastronomy.com. You can find a link to his posting on the Iraqi story and the New York Times story on the subject on our blog, Are We a Blog?, the link to which is on our website, radio.seti.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know about the uh, suppressed transmission, of course. No? Ah, oh, well, way back there when they given us that one giant step for mankind bit, another astronaut's in the background yelling his fool head off saying, oh my God, what's that over in the crater? Well, NASA cuts him off just like that. But those of us with the right kind of radios, you know what I mean? But we've had conspiracy theories almost as long as there's been civilization. Oh, it all begins to leak out then that the space program is just one giant big cover-up. You know, it's a covert operation between the United States government and the Soviet Union. We've been on the moon since the 50s. I mean, I think in one way we could imagine that the Salem witch trials are a product of a conspiracy mentality, couldn't we? Because we could say the idea that these people were communing with the devil is a conspiracy theory. That's at least three centuries of dark plots, collusion, disinformation, and secrets. Now, are there any real conspiracies? Well, of course there are. But not every tragedy has been plotted or is the result of a government cabal. Claims of conspiracy can be both long-lived and nefarious. The infamous tract that appeared in Russia 100 years ago, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, 
That's a fabricated story of Jewish plans to take over the world. And because some people still believe in this idea today, journalist David Aronovich uses these protocols to open his book, Voodoo Histories, The Role of the Conspiracy Theory in Shaping Modern History. He also includes far more recent conspiracy theories that the death of Lady Diana, for example, was the result of a plot by British intelligence or that the U.S. government was behind the 9-11 tragedy. But, Seth, how do you know what the truth is? You have to look at the evidence, of course. But one thing to keep in mind is a principle called Occam's razor, namely that the simplest explanation is most often the correct one. Why is that? Well, because it minimizes the number of special circumstances you need to understand what happened. To quote from the TV show CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. But, Seth, there could be another explanation. How about this? A boat of zebras was en route from Africa to a secret private collector who, with profits from the black market trade and free energy technology, was paying to transport the animals to a lab to isolate the gene for stripes. But they never got there because the boat was commandeered by Spanish pilots who dropped aboard from a helicopter, but not before they had been slipped sleeping pills in their tapas by the competitive brother of the secret collector, posing as an airline chef and working with the African trader to put the zebras in a petting zoo. The pilots fell asleep. The boat ran aground. The zebras escaped. They ran across the beach and along the wooden esplanade. And in that case, you'd hear the hoofbeats, and they'd be zebras. So it could be that. Right. It could be that. But the essential thing about a conspiracy theory, which is what gives it its kind of longevity, is that it diminishes and does away with the idea of accident and contingency. They just disappear. There is no such thing as accident, and it's replaced by all events having taken place because somebody has willed them or planned them to happen. So in some sense, it's kind of uh, reassuring. It's kind of comforting to know that things don't happen by accident. If Lady Diana dies in, in a car crash, well, that's just too unacceptable. Is that the deal? Yeah, I think that's very close to being the deal for a lot of people. I mean, for some people, there's the pleasure simply of passing on something which is a bit like an urban legend. You know, you say it and the pers- you see the person you're speaking to, you see their eyes grow large with wonder, which is something that we want to provoke. But I think the main reason for it is, almost exactly as you say, is what you might call the better story. And the better story... The one you prefer is the one in which somebody has decided and planned that things will happen the way they do and Princess Diana does not die in a car accident like your Auntie Flo might die in a car accident, but she dies as the result of a proper degree of planning. Now, you might say, of course, yes, but that shows there are malevolent forces to which you counter, well, it may be A, that malevolent forces are better than no forces at all, and B, that malevolent forces always suggest the possibility, don't they, that somewhere there are benign forces. Well, that brings up the question. Most conspiracy theories, in fact, all the ones I can think of, involve bad news, right? I mean, 9-11. So are there any that involve good news? No, on the whole, nobody tends to accuse people of plotting to do them good. (laughs) It's it's actually, I suppose, some kind of commentary upon people. Although, Although, actually, and let's be very controversial here, you could make an argument out to suggest that religion is quite often good conspiracy theory in a kind of a way, which is that you posit, again, a benign force working often in your favour. Now, of course, for the Greeks in the old days, gods were so capricious that you would never know whether they were going to do you good or bad, but you fundamentally believe that they were there. Well, you mentioned religion, and I think one of the examples you use in your book is the fact that, you know, the idea of conspiracies is bolstered by also the fact that, in fact, there are conspiracies. And you mentioned, for example, the Catholic Church covering up uh, sexual abuse by its uh, priests. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we should be clear about is that there are are real conspiracies. Uh, There are certainly lies. There are certainly cover-ups. But by and large, when these things happen, they're what you would expect them to be. The Catholic Church has a problem with priests abusing children. It doesn't want the thing to get public, so it does its best to hush it up. In other words, that's a conspiracy that you would expect, in a way. The conspiracy you wouldn't expect, let's take the one which started this book, which was first put to me by somebody who I was travelling with, is the idea that NASA didn't actually have guys land on the moon, but pretended and dreamed the whole thing up and reenacted it in a film studio. And you can find thousands and thousands and thousands of takers for that proposition. When this fellow said that to you, what did you say? 
Well, I said to him, because, of course, he had all these sort of bits of what he called facts at his fingertips, the, 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 the so-called anomalies about the photographs that were taken on the moon and the pictures, which bolstered his case. And he kind of sat back after delivering that one to me and said, what do you think? And I said, well, my instinct is that it would be harder to organise a hoaxed moon landing than to organise a real moon landing. Um, real moon landing requires all the things that we kind of roughly know you had to have had by 1969 because we'd seen them, rockets and uh, lunar modules and capsules and spacemen and so on. Whereas a hoax moon landing would require thousands upon thousands of people to lie about something fundamental for the whole of the rest of their lives. And that was one was quite possible and the other was fundamentally unlikely. But did your argument convince this fellow? I mean, did he back off and say, well, maybe you're right, maybe I got it wrong? Well, I said to him also, there is a strange kind of congruency between what you're saying and a film called Capricorn One, which he'd never seen, which aired in 1978, this movie, uh, which was about a Mars shot uh, in which exactly this thing happens, which is the, the astronauts are hauled off the capsule at the last minute and then forced to enact the uh, Mars landing uh, in a studio. But they escape because they can't bear the idea of living a lie for the rest of their lives and they run across the Mojave Desert pursued by black helicopters and I think one of the great things about this movie is that one of the astronauts is played by O.J. Simpson essentially presumably doing a kind of rehearsal for one of his great roles in life (laughs) I see but the guy did not back off he did not say Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you did not convince him or, or, or I, otherwise? I think I, I didn't have the facts and figures uh, there to deal with. I didn't know then that actually photography at that time was at the kind of stage whereby you wouldn't necessarily capture the stars in the uh, in that picture. Or And I didn't know at the time that the reason why the flag was flapping was because they had suspended it from a metal cross section and given it a twirl just before they took the pictures. So I didn't know. So I didn't have the information. That's very often the case when you're dealing with what are called the facts in a conspiracy theory. Somebody will say to you, here are these one, two, three, four things which provide you with incontrovertible evidence that the official version, it's always the official version, the thing that they in authority tell you cannot be true and consequently that something else must be. And it's very rare that you're in a position to countermand it. So one of the things I wanted to do in this book was give a fair number of people in that situation, if you like, the basic ammunition to to hand to deal with that situation when it happens. And it's not a very noble thing to want to do, but it's a, I contend it's a human thing to want to do. Well, I guess what I'm getting at, David, is is it an efficacious thing to do? Because uh, at least in the case in the case of the moon hoax, I mean, I do get that, and and I you know I happen to be a photographer, so I know why they you don't see the stars if you go out, you know, in, in in daylight, and the moon is up in the sky as it often is during the day, about half the month, and you make a picture, you won't see the moon either, even though it's much brighter than the stars. But I, I have somewhat given up on this because they say no, no, no. They say that just shows you you know, how clever these conspirators are. <laughs> right? It's an argument from ignorance. I, I, I can't oh, it's, you are so right, Seth. I had exactly this discussion. I was doing a radio uh, program here in Britain, uh, and it was Radio Cheshire. And in Cheshire is our big radio telescope, Jodrell Bank. And so the interviewer knew something about all this, and he had a regular caller who we will call Grant. And Grant phoned in, uh, and the presenter said to him, but Grant, I've spoken to the people at Jodrell Bank, they saw the rocket go up, and they saw they could actually see the landing on the moon take place. How do you explain that, Grant? And Grant thought for a second, and he said... Clever people, those Americans. <laughs> which rather gives, uh, which gives it an awful lot of uh, strength to your feeling of, you know, what is the point to, to all this? I am kind of frustrated by the fact that people who seem to believe in conspiracy theories are not easily dissuaded. Is that your experience? Well, I think we should distinguish between different types of people. There are, as you say, absolutely committed conspiracy theorists. I mean, when I was preparing this book, I spoke to a senior politician here in Britain, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing this book. And he said, surely you don't believe that Princess Diana wasn't the conspiracy? And I said, well, I'm afraid I don't think it was a conspiracy. And he said, and then he looked really shocked at me and upset, and he said, 
but not JFK. He said, you're not saying JFK wasn't a conspiracy. And I said, well, I'm afraid I am. And he said, nothing that you could ever say would ever persuade me mm. that JFK was not the victim of conspiracy. And I thought, OK, we're dealing with a faith issue here. And in his case, it isn't possible. But in my case, I also used to believe when I was younger that JFK was killed as a result of conspiracy because just about everybody in my generation did think it. But when I looked and had more leisure to kind of look at the facts, particularly in the build-up to this book, I could be persuaded that, in fact, it wasn't. And, and, and fairly simply, with reference to Lee Harvey Oswald's attempt to kill somebody just a few months before, which I hadn't known about, I hadn't actually known that that was true, and the fact that the so-called magic bullet, do you remember the deal-breaker, the bullet that couldn't exist, actually behaves like a perfectly normal bullet when you play it out through a proper computer reconstruction. And once you know those things, it becomes much more explicable. And I think there are quite a lot of people out there who are willing to be persuaded. And I'll just add one more quick thing, because I know your programme is a programme about scepticism. I think it's really important to bang the drum for the true sceptical cast of mind. And what a lot of conspiracy theories are is incredibly credulous. They lay claim to scepticism, but in fact they are prepared to believe preposterous things rather than to look sceptically at the world. And that's very damaging. We, I don't know how it's been in, a, in the States. We had this big problem here with the MMR vaccine. The problem was that somebody said it caused autism in children. There was no evidence for it. There was a kind of conspiracy view about it. The result was that over time, uptake of the MMR vaccine went down, we lost our herd immunity, and some kids have died of measles again, completely unnecessarily. And I think that's the kind of example, if you like, of the element of conspiracism that we are forced, in a way, to confront, whether we like it or not. Well, what about the 9-11 conspiracies? Because I know people, people who are educated, people who have advanced degrees, who seem to think that the events of 9-11 were the result of the U.S. government deliberately bringing down the World Trade Center for reasons that are, you know, either obscure or implausible. But nonetheless, this obviously interferes with our ability to forestall that sort of thing happening in the future if you think it's an inside job. Worse than that, actually. It actually is why the kind of examples given or the arguments proposed by American sources or Western sources are taken up as gospel in places like Pakistan, where it becomes extremely difficult to get agreement to the notion that 9-11 was actually the result of Islamist fundamentalist action. Now, that has big ramifications. If you're battling the Taliban in Pakistan, it's a major demotivational factor. If what you actually believe is that the thing that led to all this was actually an inside job, either by the American government or, as quite often is believed out there, by the Israeli government. One of the things I hear day in and day out is uh, the matter of UFOs and the fact that the U.S. government, which is, after all, the same organization that runs the Postal Service here, <laughs> has, has managed to cover up all uh, evidence, all good evidence, of alien visitation. I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going with this. And this is one of the kind of great things, particularly if the conspiracy theory originates on the right, because the right fundamentally believes that government is incompetent. But right conspiracy theorists also believe, completely paradoxically, that government is so competent that it can organise the most incredible conspiracies. And you have to say, in, in reaction to, say, let's say, the 9-11 conspiracy theory, which would require the government to simultaneously bring the Twin Towers down by controlled demolition, disguise an airliner as a missile, fake dozens of uh, calls from planes by voice-morphing technology. This is just to name uh, just a few things. This is the same government that cannot manage to find any WMD in the Iraqi desert not even a single vial of anthrax and as you uh, you know as your question kind of suggests there is a kind of naive and fabulous belief in the omnicompetence of government amongst conspiracy theorists which those of us in a sense who've worked inside major and large organizations tend not to share <laughs> david to what extent is the rise of the internet the fact that there are a million bloggers out there and so forth i mean this surely has increased the uh, saleability of conspiracy theories 
Well, the conspiracy theory that I begin the book with, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, was a pamphlet that was released around the world in the period after the First World War. And it was actually, in a funny kind of way, the internet of its day, because these were fairly kind of cheap, mass-produced pamphlets, but produced with the appearance of scholarship and scholarly work and so on. So its capacity for that conspiracy to duplicate itself was greater than maybe it would have been 50 or 60 years earlier. We come forward to today, and what you have with the internet is is an immense capacity to spread conspiracist thinking, in fact, just about any kind of thinking, in fact, but to spread it internationally fantastically rapidly. And you also have the capacity to generate new virtual communities very quickly of people whose views reinforce each other extremely quickly so that these groups become very entrenched and, if you like, kind of feed off each other. So that, if you like, is the kind of negative side of it. And you do indeed see mutating conspiracy theories go around the globe fantastically rapidly. But there is also the other side to this, which is it also becomes possible to use the internet to rebut conspiracy theories more quickly than once you could uh, and to get that argument out there. And I think this is really the opportunity for sceptics because I think sceptics are involved in a big series of arguments now with the anti-science forces and with pseudo-scholarship forces. It's a very big argument. But we do have the internet hand if we choose to use it and if we choose to if you like kind of respond with which to counter these arguments more rapidly than once we could have done. Well do you think that that's being done in an efficacious way? I mean does it have any effect? There are of course numerous organizations dedicated to skepticism. Uh, The Center for Inquiry in the United States has you know branches in many many cities. They have excellent publications. They do you know pretty good work at, at, at checking out things like remote viewing and so forth, other things that one could be skeptical about, but also these conspiracies. And you know they're they're able to show well you know it's conspiracy. It's it's a theory, but it's not a good one because it doesn't accord with the facts. But I I don't know that the number of conspiracies or people believing in them is going down. We do face a problem, which is that in many ways a conspiracy theory is more fun than not a conspiracy theory. That's kind of difficult. So in a way, you have to make scepticism more fun. And I think there are signs that we are beginning to do that. I mean, fairly recently in Britain, there was a a report on homeopathy showing that homeopathy is essentially completely not backed up by science. There is no kind of scientific backup for the for homeopathy or the expenditure. And one of the things that was really rather wonderful about it was people came out onto uh, outside Parliament to do a little kind of event, which then got spread around the world, about homeopathy and so on, from the sceptics' point of view. Uh, and they had fun too. So I think... I mean, I, I sound terribly naive. I sound like Pollyanna here, don't I? But uh, I do believe that scepticism as a habit of mind actually can be quite fun. And we have to engage people in the fun. And do you know what? There is fun to be had in rebutting these ideas. There is fun to be had in kind of kicking the sand up just a little bit. And I think we should have it. Well, finally, David, uh, have you gotten any reaction to your book from uh, the conspiracy theorists who say that this is one more attempt by some conspiracy to keep the truth from us. Absolutely. I've had every epithet and every organisation of government that I could be a member of thrown at me as uh, 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 as being a kind of potential for something that I'm in, from CIA to the MI5 to Mossad uh, and to everything else. And I've had people stand and look at me with tears in their eyes saying, how could you do this? So, yes, of course, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the major things that gets said, but we soldier on. <laughs> David Aronovich, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks very much. You can read David Aronovich's column in the Times Newspaper of London or in the pages of his book, Voodoo Histories, The Role of Conspiracy Theory in Shaping Modern History. At least, that's what he told us. I love scientific instruments, gadgets, surplus optics, and I've relied on a company called Edmund Scientific for years. Peruse their catalog, or these days surf online, and you'll find motors, night vision devices, and astigmatic lenses, and... A ghost meter. At least that's what Edmund Scientific calls it. Yep, it's a meter for detecting ghosts, and it runs at $89.95. It surprised us, too, but the sharp eyes that first detected this rather unusual offering from a scientific company belonged to high school teacher Matt Lowry. Matt, a well-known educational and technical hobby company, is marketing a ghost meter. What the heck is it? 
Well, basically a ghost meter, uh, or at least this ghost meter that's being marketed by this company, Edmund Scientific, is uh, it's an EMF detector. That is an electromagnetic field detector. It detects uh, electromagnetic waves, such as radio waves, microwaves, and, and things like that. But as to detecting ghosts, I think that's a very dubious claim. Well, now, wait a minute. EMF. Uh, people talk about EMF. They're worried about EMF, uh, whether it's their cell phones or power lines going through the neighborhood. There's EMF everywhere. It's like chicken man. It's everywhere. So how do you possibly separate out this, all this EMF from maybe ghosts? Well, that's one of the that's one of the the big problems, because when you see these ghost hunter shows, you know, you have these paranormal investigators is what they call themselves. They're they're walking around with these meters and they're beeping and whatnot. But they're also inside of these houses that have, you know, electrical wiring and and light fixtures and uh and all of those are things that can set off these meters because electrical wiring and light fixtures and cell phones and the cameras that they carry themselves, those all emit electromagnetic fields. So uh I don't think they're detecting ghosts at all. I think what they're detecting is the uh, electromagnetic fields that are, as you say, around them all the time, and they're just misinterpreting that as a ghost signal. So <laughs> a ghost signal. I like that. Well, so, okay, finding EMF is not proof positive of ghosts. On the other hand, I suppose the people who use these meters are probably pretty happy about the fact that the, they don't come up with null results. They, they, they find things. Well, yeah, but uh, what they're essentially doing is they're arguing from ignorance. Uh, you know, that's a classical logical fallacy, the argument from ignorance that, that basically says, well, in the context of these uh, ghost detectors, they say, oh, well, my meter's beeping. Well, I don't know what could possibly be causing it, so it must be a ghost, which is, of course, a direct contradiction. If you don't know what it is, how can you say you know what it is? <laughs> argument from ignorance is used very frequently in these matters of conspiracy. What was your reaction to Edmund Scientific selling this? I, 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 you know, I should say we contacted them for a comment, but they haven't responded to us. Well, I can uh, give you a, a real pithy summary of how I feel about it because I don't call them Edmund Scientific anymore. I like to refer to them now as Edmund Pseudoscientific because this is a well-respected science teaching catalog. It's got, it goes back many, many decades, and it's got a good reputation. And I was, quite frankly, just shocked when I found out that they were selling this. I mean, they sell EMF meters, right? I have an EMF meter in my room. I use it for demonstrations. That's not my problem. The problem is that they're actually marketing it as a ghost detector. Well, they are a scientific organization. In other words, they, they do sell materials for science. I've bought many optics, uh, telescope mirrors, eyepieces, and stuff like that from Edmund in the past. I've always been very pleased with them. Did you try and contact them? Did you try and uh, let them know that you thought this was a little bit bizarre? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, when I found out about this back in late August of last year, I uh, ran into some people who had already attempted to contact them, and I shot off an email to them, too. Basically, all the correspondence that we got back was the standard reply, you know, thank you for taking time to let us know your feelings. And that was essentially it. And apparently it hasn't had any effect because they're still selling it. Well, I can imagine you could have all sorts of ghost detectors. I mean, why not measure the barometric pressure or maybe just, you know, the direction of the magnetic field or, or how strong the Coriolis force is? Or I don't know what. But do we actually have any idea what sort of evidence a real ghost would make so we could build the right detector? Well, that's the funny thing, Seth. I think if you look at the history of this sort of thing, people used to, quote-unquote, detect ghosts, and some still do, using things like dowsing rods or you know, a, a pendulum swing back and forth or what have you. And there are people who you know, claim they can use their psychic abilities to detect these things. But this is what we're seeing with the ghost hunters and the EMF meters and whatnot. I think this is just the latest manifestation. This is like the same old bad pseudoscientific thinking, but being applied to modern technology. And so it's just the latest manifestation of this irrationality. The other thing about these ghost hunters is it's like you said, you know, how would you know that you're detecting a ghost? I have never actually seen any kind of serious protocol put forth to distinguish ghost from other physical phenomena that we understand. I don't think they know. It's not to that level of uh, discourse, I believe. It's from what I understand, they're just basically engaging in a lot of confirmation bias. They believe that there are ghosts, so they get readings on these instruments that they don't understand. So they say, hey, see, we told you there are ghosts. All right. Well, Matt Lowry, thank you so much for talking to us. And I didn't need a ghost meter to find you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you.
Matt Lowry is a high school physics teacher, and you could read more of his musings on the ghost meter and other subjects on the Skeptical Teacher website. Coming up, Jonah Lair on how the brains of scientists sometimes suppress evidence. We're talking conspiracy on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Are We Alone? And it's time to get out of here. Let's go to... Hooray for Hollywood. That's screwy valley hooey Hollywood. We're in New York. All right, everybody. This is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table. In the land of La La L.A., fact and fantasy are often intertwined. But as our Hollywood skeptic reminds us, sometimes the fantasy is an indication of a more serious disturbance. Got paranormal ability? It could pay off in cash. Our independent investigations group in Hollywood is about to bump up our prize from $50,000 to $100,000 for anyone who can prove they have the power. This means our number of applicants will go up as well. Some, a small number of them, we correspond with quite a bit. A way smaller number actually show up to be tested. Since the lure of piles of money tends to draw swindler and snake oil salesmen alike, deception is the first thing on our minds. But so far, no one has tried to trick us. So we do have other things on our minds as well. The minds of the applicants. All of the people we've looked at who claim they have paranormal ability fall into a range of mental states from making an honest mistake to suffering from full-blown schizophrenia. Anyone with a selective memory, for example, can convince themselves that they have certain powers. We tested a dowser once who claimed he could use divining rods to find water and other things underground, but he didn't realize his success was due to the near-ubiquitous presence of water under the Earth's surface. He failed our test, but he truly believed he had the ability. It was an innocent mistake. There's another group of applicants that are so convinced of their gifts that they can't seem to own up to failing our test. When Sparky the Wonder Dog, a supposed telepathic pooch, failed at a test of his ability to read a hidden number on a card, his owner couldn't admit the possibility the dog was not gifted. He blamed sunspots for the canine's collapse. Most applicants have a great deal of trouble facing the fact that they could not perform their alleged ability, so they place the blame elsewhere. But the category of applicant that is most difficult to deal with is the person who wants to be tested that is clearly not of sound mind. If a claimant shows even hints of mental illness like extreme paranoia, delusions of grandeur, or hearing voices, we have to be very careful how we handle them. In one correspondence, we learned from an acquaintance of an applicant who claimed special mental powers that the applicant was both homeless and schizophrenic. So we advise the applicant to seek help before pursuing the $50,000 prize. The IIG is fortunate to have both a psychologist and a psychiatrist on our team to help us distinguish between paranormal claims and the symptoms of mental illness. We are not in the business of trying to embarrass or humiliate applicants. We simply want to give people an opportunity to prove their paranormal powers. And that means being mindful of their minds. Jim Munderdown is executive director of the Center for Inquiry, Los Angeles. (laughs) 
This is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. And earlier in the show, David Aronovich talked about why conspiracies persist. The believers of dark cabal say the truth is out there. And writer Jonah Lair would agree, but it's not suppressed due to a dark cabal. Sometimes the truth is staring scientists right in the face. They just can't see it. In an article for Wired magazine, Jonah Lair reported on the work of Kevin Dunbar, a psychologist at the University of Toronto who studies how scientists do research. While at Stanford University in the 1990s, he investigated a group of scientists doing a series of experiments. Now, what these researchers were doing is not so important as how they managed their results. More than 50 percent of their data were unexpected, Dr. Dunbar said. But the scientists weren't prepared for that, so they tossed the data. And it turns out there's an area of the brain that prompts all of us to do this sort of thing. In the case of the scientists being studied, they were meticulous and thoughtful, says Jonah Lair. But because they were looking for X and found Y instead, they were sure they'd failed. So so what this suggests is that this old model of science we all have from, you know, third grade where you make a very testable hypothesis and then cleverly confirm your hypothesis, that's not actually what happens. That science is much, much messier than that, much more entangled with unexpected failure. Well, can you give me an example of this, uh, you know, showing the contradiction between the idealized vision of science and, and what actually happens? But the example I used in the piece involves Penzias and Wilson, two astronomers at Bell Labs, and they were using this big radio telescope. And they were using it to look at all sorts of stuff. And, and they were very frustrated by this one thing they couldn't get rid of. It was this sound of static. And, and no matter what they did, they couldn't get the static gone. So, so at first they assumed it was Manhattan, but then they pointed the telescope in Manhattan and the static didn't get louder. And they assumed maybe it was radioactive fallout, but that didn't make sense. And they assumed maybe it was the pigeons roosting in the radio telescope, but they got the pigeons out and cleaned off the, you know, the the pigeon goop, and, and it was still there, so, so they couldn't get rid of the sound of static. And it was very frustrating. They assumed the static was just an experimental failure. And to fast forward to the end, a few years later, they eventually realized that, you know what, that sound of static wasn't a mistake. It was actually background radiation from the Big Bang. It was a leftover radiation, and, and it was a crucial piece of evidence for the Big Bang actually taking place, and eventually won Penzias and Wilson a Nobel Prize. So I think that's a clear example of, here you have an experimental failure, the sound of static that was so frustrating, so annoying, and then a few years later we realized that the failure is actually a huge scientific success. Okay, so that's what presumably uh, Dr. Kevin Dunbar was trying to do, was to find out what the scientific method was that scientists really use, not the one they'd learned about in seventh grade, but what they, how they really went about the science. And, and, and in this case, it sounds like they just stumbled around with these preconceived notions until they, they were more or less forced into a completely different conclusion than what they had expected. Yes, stumbling around isn't the worst verb. Uh, you know, I think that's actually a pretty accurate um, description of, of, of the way the scientific process actually unfolds, that we generate these conjectures, these hypotheses, and then we try to test them. And most of the time, our hypotheses are wrong. But it turns out, you know, there are all sorts of reasons psychologists have demonstrated in the human brain, the fact that we cling to these hypotheses, even when there's very good data suggesting that, you know what, your hypothesis is wrong. You have to go back to the drawing board. Instead of changing our minds, what we do is we disparage the data. We brush it aside. As, as people like Dunbar use that actually hold scientific progress back. Well, are, are they brushing aside these, these results that are not, if you will, congruent with what they had hoped to find? Are they doing that just because they're, they're just biased? I mean, you know, I got this great theory, and I'm duck on it. I'm going to do this experiment until it confirms my great theory. Yeah, that's a big part of it. That, that's, that's just the way the human mind is wired. Uh, and Dunbar's done some very clever brain scanning experiments that show when you show people videos of objects falling through space that contradict their intuitions, contradict their expectations of how it's supposed to work, you see a very characteristic signal in the brain. It's a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which we basically use to edit reality. So, so we edit out, we, we delete that bit of data that doesn't make sense to us. So instead of you know, accepting this new information, we simply cling to our models and, and delete everything that suggests our model might actually be wrong. Well, I assume that we're wired that way simply because it has survival value, right? You, you need a model of the world to, you know, get some food, get some mates, whatever. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and, and so now it's getting, in, you know, it's, it's a problem in the lab. Yeah, this is part of a much larger body of research 
called cognitive dissonance, which is that it just doesn't feel nice to be confronted with dissonant data, with ideas that contradict what we believe. I mean, the, the most obvious evidence of this is the fact that liberals watch MSNBC and conservatives watch Fox News. It just it feels nice to have our beliefs confirmed rather than challenged. And when you look at the scientific process up close, it turns out scientists are vulnerable to the exact same bias. So, so what do they do? When the data don't agree with their hypothesis, do they just walk away from the experiment? Do they, they just keep hitting it with a hammer until it does agree? I mean, what do they do? Well, unfortunately, Dunbar found that far too often what they do is they retain the model and throw away the data. That, that they get these results, which they assume are just failures. They classify them as failures. You know, and we're talking, you know, this isn't every once in a while. This is 50% to 75% of all the data they're generating doesn't quite make sense, so it's classified as a failure, and they throw it out and instead keep the model. Um, so, so that's the conventional first response. What Dunbar found is, is, is that what allowed scientists to get past that kind of stubbornness, to see through their bias, was talking to other people, often at lab meetings. This is when all of a sudden they'd realize they'd have these aha moments, these epiphanies, and realize that, you know what, maybe that data was right. Maybe my model was wrong. So it was often group interactions that actually allowed scientists to see the real answer, to get past their erroneous model. Well, given that it's the unexpected that we implicitly want scientists to find. I mean, you don't win the Nobel Prize for confirming something that everybody believes already, right? You want to find that unexpected thing. It, it sounds like uh, the Nobel Prize is really should be handed out to these uh, these lab meetings, these committees. <laughs> yeah, well, Dunbar told me something very interesting, which is that, you know, when you talk to scientists a year or two after, you know, after they make their big discovery, they always say, oh, I was by myself, I was at my lab bench, it was just me, you know, I was stroking my chin, and then boom, aha, the answer came to me, it was my eureka moment. That's actually a romantic myth. More often than not, the epiphany incurred in these lab meetings, that, that it really was these group interactions that kind of shock us out of the cognitive box, that allow us to see the same old data in a slightly new way. And so all of a sudden, that thing we thought was a failure, it wasn't actually a failure. It was actually our big success. Now, one thing that comes to mind is the possibility that maybe this is why all the great discoveries are very many of them. Anyhow, maybe I shouldn't say all, but they're, they're made by young people. The you know the grad students just getting into stuff, and you know the one assumption is well, their brains are just better because you know they haven't been corrupted by getting older. But maybe the real answer is they don't uh, they don't have so much of the conventional wisdom. I mean, their brains have not been marinated in yeah. years and years of conventional wisdom. Uh, is that it, or is it just uh, you know? You know, I think I think it's a very intriguing possibility. Um, a psychologist named Dean Simonton at UC Davis has, has done a lot of work looking at scientific creativity over time, especially, especially as it relates to age. And it turns out different scientific fields have different peak ages for creative production. So physics and math tend to peak very young in the late 20s, early 30s, where something like biology, biologists tend to peak in their late 30s, early 40s, even mid 40s sometimes. It's tough to generalize you know, about scientific creativity. I think, you know, creativity very much depends on the particular field you're talking about. That said, I do think, and Simonton argues this too, that once scientists become encultured, once they become indoctrinated with conventional wisdom and they, you know, have the textbooks memorized, that actually does become harder to challenge the status quo, to see outside the box. So in this sense, knowledge and expertise is also a kind of blindness. It does inhibit our creativity. Well, what about another factor? Because early in the 20th century, uh, it was suggested that, for example, if the Jewish people could get their own homeland, uh, there would be a lot more science coming from them. This was in the time of Freud and Einstein and so forth. Uh, and uh, these Jews were living in Europe and so forth where, you know, life was uh, always on the edge. But if they could have their own homeland, they would do better. M maybe that's wrong. Maybe they would do better not to have such a comfortable existence to keep them from falling into the same trap. Yeah, this is a classic essay by Thorsten Veblen, uh, the, the sociologist, um, or the theory of the leisure class. Um, and, and it's a very controversial essay, and I happen to think Veblen was probably wrong. I mean, you can look at um, the incredible amount of scientific productivity that comes out of Israel, and I think it's pretty clear evidence that, that Veblen's very provocative hypothesis wasn't actually right. But I think his larger point about there being virtues to being an outsider, to, to not having, you know, tenure at some fancy German university. I mean, he actually gives the example of Einstein and talks about 
how if Einstein, instead of being a patent clerk, having daydreams about trains, if Einstein were actually a tenured physics professor, you know what, maybe he wouldn't have had this grand idea, maybe he wouldn't have revolutionized modern physics, that maybe there was some some real tangible benefit to actually being on the outside of the scientific institution. I think that is a general truism of creativity, the fact that, that sometimes it's easier to grasp the heart of the problem, that we're less blinded by all these models when we're actually on the outside. Well, finally, Jonah, what do you think? Should we fess up to uh, school kids and tell them how science really works? I think so. You know, I mean, I mean, for me, that's having worked in a lab and now writing about scientists, that is what makes scientists and science so interesting. That's what makes the process so glorious and so difficult. Um, the fact is we don't know the answers. Our models are provisional. You know, some of the biggest failures, like thinking this huge radio telescope is just picking up static. Well, sometimes that static is actually the beginning of the universe. Jonah Laird, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Jonah Lair is contributing editor at Wired Magazine and the author of How We Decide. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the universe means thinking critically about the evidence. And thanks to our staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. That's quite enough of that. Hey, Gary. Hey, what's up, Gary? recording the show. I'm not Gary. I'm Lloyd Frank. Office of Special Investigation, NSA. We've been watching you for some time. We know you're not hosts of a radio show, that there's no such thing as Are We Alone, and that this mic Mm. isn't even on. Look, this wire doesn't even go anywhere. Ramona, we, we knew this could happen someday. Control told us. That's right, Atticus, but I never thought it would end like this, at the end of a show, conveniently. So, uh, I suppose you're gonna shut us down, Agent Frank. That's right. I'm shutting you down. You're shutting us down? Is he shutting us down, Atticus? Shutting us down? Yes, yes, I'm shutting you down. Okay, you can shut us down, but you can't stop the others. You'll never stop they. Because I happen to know that... Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts.